When tax time comes around, are you being reactive or proactive? Do you find yourself swimming in a sea of questions? Like, is it better to do my tax return cheaply? How do I know if I'm doing them the right way? Welcome to the Tax Answers Advisor with Marcelino Dodge. Today, we'll answer these questions and many more. Sharpen your pencils and take some notes. Now, here's your host, Marcelino Dodge. Welcome today to the Tax Answers Advisor. I am Marcelino Dodge, just uh, growing a little bit more every show. We're up to a whole big number, 27 now. Great. Building, working on this big time as we listen to uh, listen to you is what you'd like to hear and also have listeners around the world, not just the United States, countries, India and Colombia and many others listen to us. And we really appreciate that. Also, as we talk about COVID-related health care benefits today, the help out there, uh, if you have any questions about comes it's today, we're going to certainly invite you to give me a call here, 844-394-4287, and certainly be able to help those as well as my guest today, uh, Dan Pavic, will be able to help you as well because we want to really help employers to really understand the benefits and what the options are for healthcare benefits today. A few quick updates we just want to make sure everyone is aware of is that a reason why we're going through this is just in the last 12 months, thousands of pages of tax-related legislation has gone through, and it's just vital that employers understand what they can do and be in compliance as well. And that's why healthcare is always on on the mind of individuals and what employers can do to help their employees is one reason we're going to talk about this topic today. Also, not going to get into this much, but we keep receiving guidance on the employer retention credit, so always welcome to give me a call about that. Uh, the IRS is also encouraging ones to look after the work opportunity credit uh, for hiring individuals in certain target groups. Then one of the recent announcements that came out this week from the IRS is that they clarified that per- protect personal protective equipment, or PPE, uh, for the primary purpose of preventing the spread of coronavirus can now be paid through uh, either uh, flexible spending accounts, which are FSA plans, health reimbursement arrangements, which are HRAs, or health savings accounts as well. All of those came through. So that's going to be a very nice uh, benefit. We're actually going to maybe talk about that, just a little bit of how that fits in there, but more specifically about the differences on those type accounts. But today, we're going to focus on um, HRAs and employee-related uh, benefits. HRA is a way for better business deductions. Using an HRA is an affordable alternative to providing group health insurance we're going to see how um, elective employee payroll deductions can also help uh, with tax benefits and the other COVID-related changes to health care benefits. And to help me discuss this today and to navigate through all of this COVID-related health care benefits, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dan Pavic of Total Administrative Services Corporation, uh, known as TASC. This is a organization that I've worked with for uh, several years. I've actually used this, uh, their benefit plans personally in my business because they help us as small business people to get the same tax advantages as large corporations. That's what they started with and that's what they continue to do and which is why I'm happy to be partnered with them and to be able to speak with Dan today about this. Dan himself has uh, worked with Task managing their micro business team for 10 years and recently joined together with his uh, partner, Steve Kielman, to form what, uh, what they call the Dakota team. Covers a large geographic area for task. Now, what I enjoy about Dan is his strong background in both supplemental insurance benefits and consumer choice health care, which is what a lot of people like to have is choice in their health care. 
Uh, he speaks uh, around the United States on uh, other tax areas, such as Section 105, Section 106, and Section 125 employee benefit plans, which is why we're going to focus on how this can help individuals and employers in this, as well as getting good training, providing training to and educating uh, ones like myself, tax professionals, financial advisors, insurance professionals, small business owners, on how they can save tax dollars for business as well as even in this environment that we are in, help to retain employees because that is so important to be able to do that. So I'm going to introduce today, this is today's guest, Dan Pavic here on the Tax Answers Advisor. Thank you and welcome today, Dan. Happy to talk to you. Thanks, Marcelino. I'm happy to be here. Yes, great. Now, I really appreciate you being here because the HRA, or Health Reimbursement Arrangement, as a way for a better business deduction, we wanted to really get a good understanding of exactly what that is, because there are some misconceptions out there. There are, absolutely. Uh, an HRA, there's a lot of tax repairs out there that are kind of explaining the HRA is one of the most overlooked tax codes that the IRS has. It's actually been around since 1954, so it's nothing new. And what it allows for a business to do is to reimburse qualified employees uh, for things like health insurance and out-of-pocket medical expenses and actually create a 100% business deduction for those items. And a lot of small business owners, especially those that are single employee, whether they're sole proprietorships or corporations, are under the false impression that their insurance premiums are 100% business deduction. They are a deduction, but a lot of times those premiums, if you're self-employed, are deducted on a 1040. So you're saving, in most cases, state and federal income taxes. But if we're able to deduct them just a different way and actually create an employee benefit deduction out of it, we pick up the ability to save FICA taxes, which are going to be Medicare, Social Security, and self-employment. So another 15.5% savings on what you would normally pay for your small uh, business health insurance. The other important element with an HRA is that we also pick up the ability to deduct out-of-pocket expenses. Out-of-pocket expenses can be anything from co-pays, deductibles, vision, dental, prescriptions, chiropractor, and one of the uh, additions with uh, due to COVID is the addition of PPEs, as you pointed out, and also any other over-the-counter medications. So anything from you know Tylenols and NyQuil's to antacids to medical supplies like Band-Aids, those are all considered qualifying medical expenses and when you deduct those as a business expense, you again are able to save state, federal, and FICA on all of those transactions versus standard or itemized deductions for out-of-pocket expenses, which most people never would qualify for because you have to exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income in order to actually receive a tax benefit on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, very important on the tax benefit there, especially 7.5%. That's just part one of that too. So, <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so, and, yeah, and good. most people, like we, they don't they don't hit that level. And even if you do hit seven point five percent, you're not able to deduct the first seven and a half. You're only deducting what's up and over. So the HRA very simply is able to take the premiums and the out of pocket expenses, bundle them together, and create a business deduction for it. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so nice to really get a good clarification on that. I even had that wrong here in the beginning here because I had that mixed up, but I do I do know that it is often overlooked there. And I do totally agree that, yeah, we need to look at this 
for a lot of our employers, something I can even look at for many of the clients I work with there. So going, going on here, what types of businesses then can benefit from this here? Would we so say? there are certain types of entities that uh, typically are going to see a, a bigger tax savings. And I think I would first break that down into how many benefit eligible employees uh, somebody may have. For example, uh, me being up in North Dakota, I work heavily in agriculture, and a lot of the times uh, the, the, the plans that we establish are for somebody that's filing like a Schedule F farm. And in that case, you need to have an employable spouse. I will point out that the most critical component of having a health reimbursement arrangement is that you have to have a qualifying employee. So an employee of a, a corporation, an employee of a partnership, or an employee of a sole proprietorship and a sole proprietorship like a Schedule C or a Schedule F, it's critical to have that employable spouse. And if that employable spouse is the only benefit-eligible employee, then we are able to set much higher limits. A lot of times, 100% of the insurance is reimbursed and maybe up to $15,000 a year in out-of-pocket expenses, so we're able to take a a little bit higher deduction. Whereas if you had multiple benefit-eligible employees, you can't discriminate on a plan like this. You can't say, well, I'm going to cover my spousal employee for 15000 and out-of-pocket, but Johnny Hired Man, you're only covered for 2000 When you set up a plan limit and you set up eligibility requirements, it's going to be across the board for all benefit-eligible employees. And I want to touch on that a little bit. So benefit-eligible is going to be deemed by the eligibility requirements or safe harbor limits that we're able to set with these plans. So, for example, and I'm going to provide the maximums and understanding that we can set them as low as we'd like to, but for part-time employees, the maximum is 25 hours per week. So anybody that does not work at least 25 hours per week would not be considered benefit eligible. Seasonal employees need to work at least seven months. So what that means is if you have um, seasonal help, even if the seasonal help is full-time, if they don't work at least seven months per year, they are not benefit eligible. Employee age can be up to 25. So if your full-time help is you know, high school or college-age kids, they do not qualify, they are not benefit eligible. And the last one is a new employee wait period. So as a business owner, if we set up a new HRA, we can put up to a 36-month wait period, which means that if you hired a brand-new employee the next day, even if they were full-time, they were year-round, and they were over age 25, they would not be considered benefit-eligible until they reached that 36 months of employment. And mm-hmm. kind of back to the original question, Marcelino, mm-hmm. when you look at the different business entities, Schedule Cs, Schedule Fs, again, they require that spousal employment. They typically are going to see some of the larger tax savings because a lot of times there's no other benefit-eligible employees there. I would follow that up with LLCs. It really depends on how they are taxed. LLC Mm -hmm. is not an actual tax status. The LLC is a limited liability company that can be treated as an 1120S or a sole proprietorship or a partnership or whatever the case might be. It really depends on what the ultimate tax treatment of that business income is as to how we would establish the plan. Um, Partnerships or 1065s. Uh, A husband and wife partnership would not traditionally work if they are looking for for benefits for themselves. If they have unrelated employees, a partnership would still work. Or let's just throw out an example of two brothers that have a partnership. They could both uh, hire their spouses into that partnership, and it would work just like a a sole proprietorship. 
Uh, okay. C corps are very easy to set up plans under. And uh, last thing is S corporations. Although S corporations do qualify to set up an HRA, there are mm-hmm. shareholder rules with uh, with S corporations. Yes. And if the S corporation owner is greater than two percent, the corporation would deduct the reimbursements, but it would result in an add back to box one wages of the W two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. Which is yeah. Which is always a little tricky at the end of the year, making sure you put the right amount into that box one. Uh, Correct. Yeah, definitely. So what we see there is important with, uh, like with your your Schedule C or your Schedule Fs, is that, and that's what I do uh, try to encourage ones to do. Sometimes it's a challenge to get that that's so a proprietor to hire their spouse. But then yeah. you got to sit. Yeah, convin- it, it, it's like convincing it them is, this, uh, this, uh, is this a, is a, a question or a, a, a yeah, exactly. It, it's a it's a point of concern because they've never employed their spouse. Their spouse is is probably helping out with the business and and always mm-hmm. has. And it really is more of a technicality than anything else. And as long as you are providing a wage, and that wage could literally be a hundred dollars a month, it just needs to generate a W two. And once there's a W-2, you now have a legitimate employee in which to reimburse for qualifying expenses. Okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely there. It's uh, always tricky there. But, yeah, we can if we can definitely work with them, and I try this is what I try to work with ones to try to – and I've tried this a lot of times. It's just it's that convincing part, getting them to understand that it's this is, going, this is how this is going to benefit you in the long run. And, of course, since I can help them with the payroll part, that – taking care of that, that that makes it really simple for them. It's just getting them to understand that this is the benefit of it. And I definitely see the benefit of this arrangement now, just getting the employers to see this there as well. But yeah, I see definitely on the C-Corp side, it's really easy. The S-Corp has a little bit of funky rules on there that you got to follow with it. But then, so on the partnerships though, if you have a partnership or the LLC that elects to be taxed as, as an S-Corp, then you just would go under the S-Corp rules with it, correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay, yeah, and usually most of my multi-person LLCs, that's what I recommend they do, is uh, is that they uh, be taxed as a, uh, as an S-Corp. That way it, uh, Got it. That way it makes it easier on a lot of fronts because most of the time it's just easier, depending on the type of business, of course, and the need of the employer and what they're doing business-wise yeah. there. So definitely. Yep, According absolutely. to their needs, so then uh, – I think you touched on this a little bit here, but as far as the kind of plans that uh, the small business owners can do with this here, HRA types? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's multiple different types of employee fringe benefits, and I'll kind of cover the, the major three are going to be the HRA, which again is a health reimbursement arrangement, the FSA, which is a flexible spending account, and then HSA, which is a health savings account. The differences between the three. So an HRA is number one, not a funded plan. It is a reimbursement arrangement between the employer and the employee. There are no age requirements and there are no specific benefit requirements for an HRA. There are people that have no insurance that use HRAs. There are people that have high deductibles. They have low deductibles. They might have direct primary care. They might have health sharing ministries. There are no specific requirements for an HRA. The bottom line is the HRA allows for qualifying expenses to be treated as a business deduction. Shifting gears to the medical FSA or flexible savings account, that is going to be something that is traditionally employer offered 
and many times results in um, payroll deductions for the participants of that flexible spending account. It is a funded plan, and there are certain benefit limits that are set. And we'll be getting into a little bit more of those benefit limits later when we start talking about some of the COVID changes. But some of your traditional medical FSAs are going to include things like non-employer-sponsored premiums, they could include dependent care, and they could include uh, medical FSA or flexible saving accounts, or flexible spending accounts, excuse me, where there are payroll deductions that are elective on the employee's mm-hmm. side to have access to those dollars pre-tax. And the okay. last type is the health savings account. And with a health savings account, uh, there, there's a maximum contribution annually. You have to be under age 65, and you need to have a qualifying high-deductible health plan. Without a qualifying high-deductible health plan, you're not able to fund the health savings account. Okay. All of these yes, that- benefits that we've talked about, Marcelino, are all uh, follow the same line as far as what is and what isn't deductible for out-of-pocket mm-hmm. expenses, but how we set them up and what qualifies to set them up are all going to be a little bit different. Yes, definitely there. And that's one of the issues you mentioned there about the qualifying health plan to do the HSA. That's that's an issue I've encountered sometimes with individuals when they want to contribute to an HSA, but yet they they had health insurance, but it wasn't a qualified HSA plan, which is always the difference between on a high deductible plan. So that's very that's correct, tricky. Yeah. Once again, so I definitely see where you're coming from there. Now, we uh, also have the topic about an HRA as an affordable alternative to providing group health insurance because we all know how much group health insurance is. I know I've looked at that possibility for my business. It's just plain outrageous, just simply yes. a way to put it. Uh, so how can we have an HRA as an attractive alternative to group health insurance? That, that's a great question, and there's been a lot of legislation over the past three years that have made it a lot more attractive to small employers, and I will break that down into two separate categories because the first one is going to be using the HRA as just a regular defined contribution. When you set up a group health insurance plan, you're kind of at the mercy of the insurance company as to what your premiums are going to be and how much they're going to go up each year. When you establish uh, an HRA, you set the dollar amount limits, your employees go out and purchase their own health insurance, and you would reimburse them each month for up to the maximum or what they pay, whatever amount is less. So if we just throw out an example, let's say that we've got a small business where we've got three full-time employees that we want to help with insurance. Instead of going with the group health insurance route, we might create a defined contribution and provide $500 per month per employee for health insurance reimbursement. Employee one goes out and purchases a plan. They pay $600 per month. They are eligible for $500. That's added right into their payroll. It is a non-taxable item, not subject to state, federal, and FICA, and it is not subject to payroll taxes. So it is 100% tax-free dollars that that employee now has to go purchase their own individual policy. Let's just assume that employee two and three only spend $400 per month for their insurance plans. They would only be eligible for 400, even though the premium limit was set at 500, because again, you're reimbursing up to the maximum or what the employee pays, whichever amount is less. That version of the HRA is by far the simplest because again, it's just a defined contribution. The employee goes out and purchases their own insurance and the employer reimburses them and we would create all the plan documents and summary plan descriptions required to support that tax-free benefit. 
a lot of people, uh, they do not want to provide group insurance, so they mm-hmm. instead are just grossing up wages. When you pay cash and instead of paying benefit, just keep in mind that you're paying taxes on it, you're paying payroll taxes on it, and if you give that employee that same $500, they may only see 350 by the time taxes are taken out to purchase something that they could have had tax-free money for. Mm-hmm. I want to pause yeah. there on the defined contribution before I shift gears. Do you have any mm-hmm. specific questions or things you want to point out on that on that avenue? On that avenue, what I was thinking about here is how does that work if an employee uh, buys insurance on an exchange and gets the tax credit? Yep. So the reimbursement amount, so in my example of $500, that employee would have to report that $500 to their modified adjusted gross income. So they would have $6,000 that they would have to be adding into uh, their, their wages, even though it's not taxable that will have an impact on their their subsidy. It might not be dollar for dollar. It all depends on their income bracket. It does not make them ineligible to receive subsidy, but it will definitely have an impact. If you have employees that that is not an affordable solution, for example, you have three employees, two of them do not qualify for subsidy, but one of them does qualify for subsidy. They do have the option to opt out of that HRA so that they are not uh, losing their eligibility for subsidy if it's deemed to be unaffordable. Oh, okay. Un- unaffordable as far as how the be- becomes unaffordable because they got the subsidy? or I'm, I'm, I'm a little yes. unclear on that part there. Yes, because they, so again, if, if they're in a situation because of their income bracket where they are losing their tax credit or they're losing their advanced premium tax credit where they're receiving a subsidy, they mm-hmm. can opt out of the HRA. Okay. Okay. So it's like, so say if they're paying like 50 bucks a month after the subsidy, they can just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I don't need the 500 bucks in. Exactly. Exactly. And then they would not be eligible for the reimbursement from the employer. Okay. Now, because if they get the subsidy, I mean, this, the employer cannot, like that $500, if they're giving $500, they, they can't just say, well, we're just going to give you 50 bucks, right? They, they have to give them the whole 500 no. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, they, they, they would have to report up to the maximum that they're eligible for. Mm, okay. Okay. So it's either, basically, it's, at least if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, it's on this reimbursement arrangement, it's either the whole $500 or, or nothing if you opt out. Yes, when it gets down to the marketplace, even if your premiums are only $100 because of what your subsidy is, is, uh, is providing, you have to report the full 6000 because that is what your employer is making available to you. So that okay. 6000 would be added into their modified adjusted gross income and will increase their, uh, their premium that they have to pay accordingly. Okay, so what it sounds like is that if an employer's offering this and if it's and if it's feasible anyway what the employee may want to do is actually buy a policy off the exchange if they want to take full advantage yes. of it. correct okay yeah okay because i have a few employees i have a few clients that actually buy off the exchange for for various reasons there so yeah so as we come and, and back a lot to this, of times you know getting back into the marketplace um not all plans are going to be subsidized you can absolutely access insurance through the marketplace 
and choose from your bronze, silver, or gold plan and use the employer reimbursement to, to pay for those premiums, no problem. It's when, it, when they qualify for, for subsidies and they're taking advantage of the advanced premium tax credits that they need to make sure that if their employer is reimbursing them and providing them up to that, you know, again, my example is $500. That dollar amount can be determined by the employer, but there's $6,000 in that benefit limit that would have to be added into their, uh, their modified AGI, and that is going to impact their ability for, for um, eligibility on subsidies. It doesn't necessarily need to be dollar for dollar, but it depends on where their income bracket is and where they may phase out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's definitely a good discussion that the employee needs to have with their employer in regards to this and try to maybe have a third party. This is actually a third party like myself who understands this a little bit more can sit down with them and help them to understand this. That way they can know, make a good decision best for them. Because one of the big issues I run into with not just this, but a lot of benefit areas is just lack of information for the employee. They make choices that aren't best for them because they're just running off what the employer says. So. Correct. Um, that's that's why I try to do what I do is to try to help ones to to make good decisions there, help employees yes, to do absolutely. it. Absolutely. So then, as we come back to this and look at this, and we really appreciate this, and this is makes it really attractive. There, what's what size of a business or how many employees really would does it look like would that your like targeter is really trying to help with this with the HRA that can benefit from this. So there really is no such thing as an employee limit. Uh, these defined contribution plans uh, can be set all the way up to, to 50 employees. Uh, once you have 50 employees, there are some requirements to provide health insurance, but there are alternatives to group health insurance, even if you're over 50. And that is kind of the new legislation that I was talking about. And that is called an ICRA, or Individual Coverage HRA. And that is what I like to call an, a regular HRA on steroids because <laughs> a traditional HRA uh, does not allow for employee contribution. It is 100% mm-hmm. employer funded. When we mm-hmm. get into the ICRA, the ICRA is paired with something very similar to like an FSA and it is called the non-employer sponsored premium. So again, back to my example of a $500 reimbursement from the employer Let's just say that uh, I've got an employee that has a family plan and they're paying $900 a month for their premiums. If we establish an ICRA, that $500 is made for for Mm -hmm. an employer contribution. The employee can fund the additional $400 through the non-employer sponsored premium arrangement and now they have the full $900 tax-free. Wow. We always like tax-free, and that's the best part about trying to figure this whole, of talking about this, is to give as much tax-free, and why I like talking about anything that can create tax-free for yes. the employer and the employee, especially, because they're trying, uh, and there's just a lot of stuff going on, and we want to help help those to, to do it, and this is one of the great arrangements that they can do. So, how then does an employer, because it's not, I mean, you're, you're this is a lot of great information, it's really, really great, but then... One of the questions that always comes up is, how is this administered? How am I going to take care of this as an employer? It seems like a lot of work for me to do this, to, to provide this benefit to my employees. Yes, and to kind of put in a plug for, for task here, that is, <laughs> that is what uh, an advantage of having uh, a, a third-party benefit administrator that has been doing mm-hmm. this and been around for 42 years is that we would be able to set up the, the plan documents 
we'd be able to provide an audit guarantee. Um, if there's anything with out-of-pocket expenses, we issue what we call task cards. They are merchant-coded debit cards, so they give people direct access to their funds to pay for their co-pays and deductibles, vision dental, things like that. So yes. all of the reimbursements are tracked automatically. Uh, the, the bottom line is if you're going to use an HRA, it is very critical that you have the appropriate plan documents that not only support the IRS, but also the Department of Labor and ERISA. So with all of the moving pieces between the health care reform and the COVID relief, it is critical that if you're going to use some of these tax-free benefits, that you have a, uh, a very qualified third-party administrator to assist with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I do. I do agree that uh, Task is a, is great at doing this because they've they've done it for a long time. They've they've done it for me, and personally, yep. which is why I can speak so highly of them because it's it is such a. It's just like anything. There's legalese in everything, and in this, you got to make sure you got your ducks lined up because uh, the fees are are very reasonable, especially the tax benefits you get back more than cover cover the administration fees and just. The headaches, the guarantees, all of that, and being able to do something like an HRA plan is just is just a beautiful thing, because for small employers to be able to offer a wonderful benefit to their employees that's affordable, uh, even if it's a if you, if you go five hundred bucks, like you mentioned in the HRA reimbursable, that's so much better than a thousand dollars or more per employee you're paying. I mean, I see these numbers. I see like. On because they they put the code on the W twos how much they paid for health insurance I look at that and I go oh my my eyes just bulge each time even after all the, yep. <laughs> all the years I've been seeing that I just, <coughs> I see twelve thousand here I see twenty thousand in some cases I'm like whoa this is a great 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 alternative for that so certainly we want to uh, continue to help ones to do this um, and I really appreciate you talking about these uh, uh, Dan because it's. It's just great, but there's another option that we were going to look at here. Talked about elective employee payroll deductions, how those save on tax. So let's stop and take a look. Yeah. What are these elective pay, elective employee payroll deductions and to save on tax? And that kind of piggybacks off of the, the last conversation that we had with the individual coverage HRA. And when we start talking about payroll deductions for employees, uh, you either have to have a qualifying group health insurance plan um, in order to set up those medical FSAs, dependent care, parking and transit, things like that, or you have to have that individual coverage HRA that allows for the employer contribution. And then basically, once the platform is established, uh, in, and I always kind of use the visual of buckets because it's easy for people mm-hmm. to, to see, you can set up a bucket for insurance, you can set up a bucket for daycare expenses, you can set up a bucket for medical FSA. The employer decides which buckets to make available. The employer decides how much they're going to put into each one of those buckets on the employee's behalf. And then the employee has an enrollment form that they fill out to decide how much they want to set aside for through mm-hmm. payroll deductions so that they have access to those funds tax-free. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, and you, you mentioned the, you mentioned the buckets, the, the employer can select the buckets there. I mean, how do the how does an employer pick? I mean, they got so much so much they can offer. How does or what help is there for an employer to be able to select deductions that are appropriate for for their business? Because obviously, not everything that's available is appropriate for every business. But how does an employer make those selections to offer to their employees these deductions? Yeah, and that's a great question. And there are so many different scenarios and so many different situations. 
And what I do, mercifully, you know, is when I am doing a consultation with a, a prospective client, it's kind of an interview style and figuring out what they have, what they'd like to provide, what some of the needs are of the employees so that we can customize a benefit plan that best fits their particular situation. There's all different kinds of accounts or buckets, if you will, that can be made available. I would say that the primary three are the three that I've talked about, uh, whether it's health insurance, dependent care, medical FSA, and with some of the recent changes changes to, uh, to COVID um, changes due to, to health care here, it makes the medical FSA very attractive uh, because of the fact that a lot of the benefits have increased significantly as far as what's allowable. Uh, they can make changes at any point throughout the year, and there's no more use their lose it clause. That, that's always been a major setback for mm-hmm. people is that if they don't use the funds, they lose the funds. And that is no longer the case with some of this COVID relief that's coming out. Oh, that's that's just great. I remember because I know in particular we FSAs in particular those those were a user to lose it for a long time. Yes, and yeah, and, and the they, FSA uh, is really the only benefit that has that user to lose it clause. HRA, mm-hmm. uh, HSA, those are those don't have that same situation most of the time. But FSA mm-hmm. has always been kind of a a, a scare for for employers mm-hmm. to offer because. Mm-hmm. The employees didn't want to fund it. They they were worried that they wouldn't use up their money. Yeah, yeah. I had I had done some FSAs a while back when I was working with one employer. I always would tell I would always tell the individuals, how much are you going to spend on your medical or dental this year? We got to make sure we plan that properly. <laughs> because yes. you're going to lose it. And then finally they then then was it? Then they gave the oh oh boy, it just escaped me. Then they gave like the overlap period. You could use it so much in yep. like the next they, they 30 have, or 60 days into uh, the they, next they year. They created a, a grace period, which mm-hmm. is uh, allows go. somebody up to 90 days into the next year to still uh, incur an expense and use the funds. And a couple of years ago here, they, they instituted a carryover feature, which allows people to roll up to $500 of their medical FSA. And like I said, now uh, due to COVID, they've expanded that. So it's an unlimited carryover. So there is no use their lose it clause that would be built into the medical FSA. Some of those other uh, buckets like the insurance or the dependent care, those aren't really use their lose it. Those are kind of money in, money out. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're putting aside $500 a month for daycare, for example, you, you know what your daycare bill is going to be. You go pay for your daycare expenses, yes. you submit a claim, and then your TPA is going to reimburse you those funds back into your mm-hmm. checking account or back onto your card or however it's administered as a tax-free event. The, the difference with the medical FSA is that if you, you know, flex, if you will, the, mm-hmm. you know, 2650 or for example, or even 2000 for a round number, you have yes. that available balance to you right away at the beginning of the plan year. So you might have all of those funds gone by June, even though you're, you're still making contributions to it all the way through the end of December. And that particular plan, the medical FSA is the one that, uh, has, has you know had some some controversy on that use their lose it clause and that is the specific plan that allows for that carryover now and it still has the grace period but there's a lot less risk associated with the medical FSA now as a result of a lot of these recent changes yeah yeah and I know a lot of employers are probably very appreciative of that and may even have more employee participation in an FSA as a result of that absolutely there, so there so so then uh we looking at these these how does a how does a small business then they, oh they look hey this is great we want to do this but how do we set it up once again it comes and back again, how do we set it, these it's up it's kind of back 
back mm-hmm. to the point of uh, you need to have a TPA to do these things, especially mm-hmm. with all of the recent changes. The, there, there's new regulations coming out almost every single week on these things. So having a TPA that specializes in these types of employee benefit plans is going to be uh, definitely recommended. There are some CPA firms out there that do payroll, and they'll, they'll administer the payroll deductions. But what mm-hmm. people are a lot of times lacking is the physical plan documents that make all of these things possible possible that have the IRS and the DOL and the ERISA language built into it. We can go through the motions and take payroll deductions, but without mm-hmm. the plan itself, it's like going out and setting up a savings account and calling in a 401k. Exactly. And one of the one of the big issues that comes up is this type of deal that I, that that we're bringing up about having a third party administrator and that's that's vital because as a professional like I am, yeah, I can do the deductions. No big deal. You go and you put them in there and everything. But one thing that any tax professional that's doing this should know is the fact that the IRS, if they audit these people, they want some type of written plan document. Yep. And and as a professional myself, I'm not qualified to write up that document. I admit that. <laughs> yep. That's why I that's why I talk to, to individuals like uh, like you, Dan, someone from Task, because. You have all of the attorneys, all of that that's already filled out those documents, so we have all of our ducks lined up just in case. I always, because I always prepare people for. We got to prepare for the just in case. <laughs> yes, that way it's. I would agree not, with you. That's not because we just don't want to have that that bad thing happen. Because you never know what can happen, especially in this new administration coming in. They they, they talked about, uh, uh, oh the word the word just escaped me again. Uh, increasing enforcement and. Usually, when they increase enforcement, who they pick on? Small business. Right. Yep. And so, we want to definitely yeah, and if help. If you get caught with a with a plan that's that's non-compliant, it's going to result in a, a back payment of uh, payroll taxes most of the time for the employer, and that's if mm-hmm. they don't go after the employees themselves. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, and I always that's what I always warn people about. You know, the 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 you just better off doing this. As far as paying payroll, pay payroll taxes, or if you want to do a plan, this is what we need to do. But we always warn them in advance. And so, but as we come back and we see the employer set it up, we get them with a third-party administrator, such as Task, to help them to administer these deals. What is the benefit then to the employer to have these programs? What's what's it going to do for them? And we think about even the environment we're in with COVID and uh, and employment going around, jumping around. So many people unemployed. But what's going to How's the, how's the employer going to benefit from implementing this in their business, even even in these conditions? I would say that there's two major components to that question. Uh, first and foremost <laughs> is the ability to attract and retain employees. When uh, you know a, a new employee comes on board, one of the first questions that they're going to ask is, "What do you provide for benefits?" And if mm-hmm. I'm a small business that can't afford to provide group health insurance, and my answer to that question is nothing, uh, it's not that attractive for a new employee to come on board. Where if we start offering things like we're going to reimburse you for up to $500 a month for your health insurance, we're going to provide you the ability to set aside money through payroll for your daycare expenses and your out-of-pocket medical expenses, now we have a benefit program. So we can be a small employer with one, two, or three employees and have a benefit program that rivals the large employer across town. 
So attracting and retaining employees is a very, very critical component. It always has been, but even more mm-hmm. so now. The ability to attract uh, quality help is not easy, especially mm-hmm. when you're in a rural community like I am. Uh, but mm-hmm. this levels the playing field big time. And mm-hmm. the, the second component to that is the, the payroll tax savings. Again, mm-hmm. you can provide you know cash wages all you want. You can increase yes. wages and give somebody more money per hour and attract them that way. But it's really not a company. You're still paying payroll taxes on it, and they're paying mm-hmm. state, federal, and FICA on something that they could have tax-free if you just had the right plans in place. Mm. Now, since you you mentioned that you're in a rural area, because I'm in a rural area myself there, and one of the things that I encounter a lot with, with benefits is that some can come in and work, but yet they may be on, like, like the state Medicaid program. Yep. How, does, uh, how can you coordinate a benefit program like that with the state Medicaid program, or can you? So you can, but you, again, you're kind of limited as far as what you can provide. Uh, an HRA probably wouldn't be necessary in that case, but mm-hmm. that person may very well have high daycare expenses that they're paying for. They might still have some out-of-pocket expenses that they want to set aside for, so they can still utilize some of those pre-tax benefits but a lot of times if they're on a state-sponsored plan, uh, it probably wouldn't be in the best interest of the employer or the employee to set up an HRA because it could potentially hurt their ability to receive Medicaid if their employer offered them an alternative. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's where, once again, coordination and working together. Uh, yes. And communication is going to be vitally important for both the employer and the employee there to make sure. But one of the good points about, as we look at the HRA, it allows the employer to control their costs. Because you know what yes. the, set, the set amount is going to be. Yeah, every the single year they can modify those those plans. So mm-hmm. if they decide that they want to make them more benefit rich, they can increase the benefit limits. Or on the flip side of that coin, if they had a bad year due to COVID or anything else, they can decrease those benefit limits. And that is up to the employer and not to the insurance company. Mm-hmm. Yes, so definitely very wonderful. So let's uh, dip into here then to our COVID-related changes in regards to health care benefits. And as I, mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, thousands of pages of just tax information came out, which has been just a nightmare to try to understand it with everything from employer to the individual. Uh, but as we look particularly at health care benefits, what are some of these changes we've seen? I'll try and hit some of them at a high level. Uh, There's several of them. Uh, The first one we kind of touched on a little bit, and that is, again, the addition of over-the-counter medicines and protective equipment as a qualifying expense, and that'll, again, be for for all three of the different benefit plans we talked about, whether it's an HRA, an FSA, or an HSA. The second one is the addition of uh, non-qualified health plans, so things like direct primary care, and a major one is health sharing ministries, That has never been a deduction in the past. We are able to treat health-sharing ministries as a contribution and deductible as an out-of-pocket medical expense if an HRA is present. So that is uh, something that has has drawn a lot of of new plans over the last year here. That was an executive order placed last July. So again, those health-sharing ministry premiums that are not considered premiums, they're not considered a minimal central coverage, they are Mm -hmm. deductible if an HRA as an out-of-pocket expense. The, the third one is the increase of dependent care limits. It always mm-hmm. was $5,000 in the past. Uh, a lot of people had a lot more in daycare expenses due to COVID, and they've mm-hmm. doubled that limit, so it, it can be up to $10,000. Uh, 
uh, the unlimited carryover we touched on. There's no more use it or lose it clause. And the second part of that is that an employee can now make a change of election at any time without a life-changing event. So they are able to increase their limits if, if need be without having to, uh, uh, you know, usually it's a, a birth, a death, a marriage, a divorce, things like that. A life-changing event is the only qualifying event that would allow them to make those changes. They can make a change at any point right now. Okay. Uh, the fifth one, and this one is um, brand new, and that is the COBRA subsidies. So mm-hmm. the COBRA subsidies uh, are going to be tricky because it is not just for groups that are mandatory COBRA with 50 plus. It is going to be for anybody that offers group health insurance. Mm-hmm. And the other part of this is that they have to be able to backdate to January 1st of 2020 for, for eligibility. And mm-hmm. the subsidy is going to be from April 1st to September 30th of this year. Many changes are being made uh, due to this American Rescue Plan Act. And mm-hmm. again, I will put out a plug for the taskcapitalconnection.com because yes. of the fact that every time a legislative update is made, there's mm-hmm. a notice that goes out to all of the subscribers so they can try mm-hmm. to keep uh, up to speed with what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, that COBRA subsidies, that's a big one in itself there. I've tried to understand that because I've worked with some health insurance in the past. But so that, I didn't get, understand that part though. So like if you have an employer, say that has 10 employees, they're not required to have COBRA. But yet if one of those employees leaves, they can qualify for this subsidy. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? If if there is an employee that leaves due to COVID related, whether it's the employer laid them off or they left voluntarily, due to COBRA, or due, excuse me, due to COVID, they are mm-hmm. eligible for that subsidy. And that is going to create a nightmare for these small groups that have never had to deal with COBRA administration in the past. Oh, my goodness. Boy, this seems like every time something comes out, there's just more paperwork involved in it there. Yeah. But <laughs> I was going to say, because you mentioned about how the health sharing plans are now basically qualify within the HRA. Is that cr- is that is that under, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. For reimbursement so, uh, there. Health sharing health sharing ministries or Christian health plans, there's a lot of different variations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are never they're not premiums. They're not mm-hmm. subject to the standard self employed health insurance deduction, but the mm-hmm. contributions are going to be considered two thirteen D medical expenses, which means that mm-hmm. they are qualified to itemize or they are qualified for a reimbursement through a plan mm-hmm. like a health reimbursement arrangement making them 100% deductible. Ah, okay. Well, that's good because I know a lot of people really prefer those type of plans. You've heard good and bads about those. Just you've heard good and bads about health insurance, regular health insurance. Certainly. So, uh, but for some people, those are very attractive because many of the cases, at least in some of the research I've done, the premiums seem to be very reasonable, at least what they're, what they're charging anyway. Uh, yes, I agree. With, with, I've seen with a fairly good deductibles well, too. A lot, a lot of people have been very happy with them because of the fact that they understand they're probably going to incur a little bit more in out-of-pocket expenses. But when mm-hmm. you can take your premiums from fifteen hundred a month to five hundred a month or four hundred a month, you can afford to pay a little bit more in out-of-pocket. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, with that, can you can the health sharing then be since it's reimbursed through the H can be reimbursed through the H HRA then HRAs. Then, like the out-of-pocket part of it, like for the deductible part, 
before the plan kicks in, those those would fall under the HRA, of course, right? Yes, absolutely. And the way I always describe that is um, in a health sharing situation, you're only going to deduct the portion that you physically have paid mm-hmm. for. So if you're getting shares from other members of that ministry, you're only going to want to deduct what is the, the net amount that you paid, not necessarily the full amount that you paid up front. So you just mm-hmm. have to be a little bit careful that you're not double dipping. Okay. Yes, definitely. Always always be careful of the double dip and definitely there. Another area that I found interesting that you mentioned was the direct primary care uh, is now also yep. a part of that reimbursement eligibility. And it seems like this, this is actually a growing trend, this direct primary care. Uh, yes. Because uh, a lot of people like access to, to, a, to a quality doctor that they really like. And so some will, are willing to pay like a monthly subscription fee to do that and to get be able to get that appointment. That's correct. Is that part of maybe why yeah. they finally threw this in there is because the, it's, just, it's just been growing? I know I actually that's something that I personally use as direct primary care because it's, it's worked out great for us. My wife and yep. I even have an yeah, access to our doctor. So. It's exactly, and I see a lot of that. It's growing rapidly in, in some of the, the coastal big metro areas mm-hmm. is that these doctors have gotten so busy uh, that they've got such a large client base that they kind of wanted to have more of a focused practice so they will offer that where somebody might pay, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars a month, and uh, they have then direct access to that doctor, and the doctor is able mm-hmm. to shrink their client size and spend a little bit more time with them instead of, mm-hmm. you know, running through the cattle shoot, if you will. They can yeah. take an hour and spend with them and have a little bit more quality instead of quantity. Yeah. Well, and some of the some of the benefits I've seen of that is some of the doctors. We'll give you discounts for certain procedures and certain medications, yes. these kind of things that you get as a result of that membership. So it basically pays for itself. It's really, really been a nice benefit to us. So it's, I'm glad to see that it was finally added in because it was something that was long overdue because it is an effective means to get good health care, good primary yes. care. And, get, and then like we discussed, it's not considered a premium. So it's not a premium deduction. It would be a 213D, which makes it an out-of-pocket expense deduction. So mm-hmm. without something like an HRA, it's going to be an itemization, and you still might not hit that 7.5%. So okay. an HRA allows for those things to be reimbursed and therefore deducted. Okay, yes. And then is that daycare change, that only for 2021 or under current law, or is it at, uh, more, for at longer? At this point, it is only for 2021. Um, okay. I, I, you don't very often see that when a regulation like that is introduced that they, they go backwards on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't speak firmly that it'll stick, mm-hmm. but I know it, it's intact for 21 indefinitely, and uh, hopefully they they expand and continue that down the road because I, I know I've got a couple of siblings and you know they're they're spending a, a small mortgage payment on daycare expenses mm-hmm. and a five thousand dollar you know dependent care FSA just doesn't cover it. So mm-hmm. having that higher limit is is definitely advantageous. Okay, so that's for FSA too for their for the contributions they make. Because that's a much better yes. deal using it through an FSA than taking a dependent daycare credit anyway. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. So, so for the for those that take advantage of it in their FSA, I see it as a fabulous deal. Now, for employers who do reimbursement for that, they have an option whether they want to use the increased amount or not. So, but that's Correct. up to the employer. Yeah, the exactly employer to decide. has the ability to opt out of the, mm-hmm. the even the allowable increase in limits. If they didn't want to make that available to their employees, okay. they would have to opt out of that. I don't know why you wouldn't because again, mm-hmm. it's it's a money in, money out account. And if somebody's mm-hmm. setting aside $800 a month for their daycare pre-tax, 
the employer saving payroll taxes on $800 a month. So it would, uh, it'd be in their best interest to make sure that if they have employees that have high daycare expenses that they offer a dependent care FSA. Okay. Yes, definitely. There, Those changes have been great. So just real quickly here, uh, what are just some liabilities that employers should keep in mind with this and why it's important to use a third-party administrator here like this to take care of these benefits here? I would, would say, you say I can summarize that in, in, in one sentence. It's, this is a very <laughs> dynamic situation we're dealing with, and it's, mm-hmm. it's ever-changing. Ever and some employers are using you know, tax firms or they're self-administering employee benefit plans, and the IRS and Department of Labor are coming up with new regs almost daily anymore. So it, it's just critical that you, you're familiar with all the changes and up to speed with them so that you don't end up in a situation where you've got DOL fines or IRS if you've got non-compliant plans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thus with that then, how do we see, of course, you've already, you touched on how important it is to have like a third-party administrator where an employer then is, is able to protect themselves and the business. And Dan, you know, I just really appreciate you coming on today. Dan Pavic with Task, uh, explaining these HRAs, how they are a good way for employers to save on uh, matching FICA taxes and for employees to save on taxes. Just a whole big, nice tax arrangement, be able to offer a wonderful, wonderful plan for employers, small businesses in particular, to be able to compete with the large businesses on employee benefits. It's a very affordable plan. I certainly invite um, invite ones to give me give me a call here on Marcelino Dodge here with Dan Pavic from Task today. It's been been wonderful. You have any questions about such plans, of course you can call call me and I'll be happy to hook you up with Dan here. I'm at 844-394-4287. You can also email me at success at cashtracksfinancial.com. And we always want to help businesses, employers do their best to save on taxes. And uh, such a quality uh, individual as Dan Pavic here and working with Task to do this, to set up an HRA, to administer it properly and avoid all the legal issues there. Again, Dan, I'm so grateful that you were with me today. And uh, maybe we, and sometime again, maybe we can talk and get in touch into another little area here that you also specialize in. Maybe that's going in big here. So anyway, everybody have a wonderful day. We really appreciate you listening today to the Tax Answers Advisor on the Voice America Business Channel. Look forward to talking to you again next week. This is Marcelino Dodge once again on the Tax Answers Advisor. Thank you for listening to the Tax Answers Advisor with host Marcelino Dodge. We'll be back again next Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll have more to share next week.